And we are live. Just kidding, guys. It's a premiere. If you're watching this right now, that means it's Thursday, and more than likely you're watching part two. Uh, actually, no, this is going to be part three, three. Yeah. of our Italian La Cosa Nostra uh, Mafia S series. Series La Cosa Nostra series, basically. As you guys know, we're covering the Italian Mafia. You guys have been asking for this for months. So today we're going to be covering the Lucchese crime family. And I know we had said that we're going to do Colombo, but I'm waiting because I actually want to do the interview with Michael Francis first, if possible, before we do the Colombo crime family. But uh, without further ado, we got Angie in the house. Angie, introduce yourself to the people. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, some people call it Cosa Nostra instead of La Cosa Nostra. I don't know why. Uh, apparently, that's like the real name of the thing. But yeah, um, yeah, this is part three of the Italian Mafia series that we're covering every Thursday. So tonight we're going to do Lucchese. Lucchese. Lucchese, crime family, yeah. And actually, it was you that found this documentary. So, yes. you know, good work on that one. She's the one that actually found and recommended this one, guys. So if it sucks, um, make fun of her. No, it's, forget about it. <laughs> it's not gonna suck. It's actually really good. I really enjoyed it watching it. And the thing is that worries me is getting hit with the copyright, as I told you. But we're right. gonna we're gonna do something. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. We're we'll gonna do something about it. So this comes from um, uh, let's see here from A and E guys. Uh, Mobsters, Tommy, Lucchese, and the Mafia. Full episode. Let's go ahead and uh, we can go ahead and give them a like. So we'll show them a little bit of love. Um, and uh, yeah, let's. Uh, Angie, you got anything before we get into it? Nope. All right, cool. Nobody brought in money like Tommy Lucchese. This was an absolute criminal with a total criminal mind. Tommy Lucchese saw there was a lot of money in corrupting unions in what were called legitimate enterprises. There were fixed fights. Boxing never saw such corruptness as when the mob was there. The Lucchese crime family is one of the most significant organized crime families in the country. Tommy Lucchese was a guy who would kill you in a heartbeat if he thought you were going to get in his way. This was a stone cold killer. And guys, as you guys know, this is common with uh, the mafia. They're involved in a multitude of different crimes that will earn them money. Um, extortion, rackets, um, you know, taxing people, gambling, illegal gambling, prohibition, obviously selling alcohol when it was banned back in the 20s and 30s. So anywhere that they can make a dollar, they're definitely involved in it. And back then, guys, they ran the United States. Um, so let's get into it. New York City, 1934. Popular violinist David Rubinoff ducked into a restaurant for a bite to eat. Inside, he spotted a notorious diner across the room. It was mobster, Tommy Lucchese. When the guy caught sight of Lucchese, he literally went white. And Tommy invited him over to the table. Rubinoff had a reason to be scared. He owed Lucchese $10,000. In those days... Oh, Lord, that's not good. Mamma mia! $10,000 back then. Ten grand was a lot of money. It, it was the Great Depression. A toothbrush cost five cents, and a loaf of bread went for less than a dime. Holy. Well, you can tell there. Rubinoff had borrowed the cash from Lucchese to buy a Stradivarius violin, but never paid him back in full. The Russian-born musician knew he was in trouble. No one... $10,000 in 1930, guys, the equivalent uh, in purchasing power to 180000 $180,740.12. Holy. Wow. 
My man owed 180k in today's day and age. So yeah, they're definitely yeah, gonna. They're know. they're they're definitely not gonna forget about it. You're gonna have to pay up. Welched on Tommy Lucchese. Rubinoff told Lucchese that he was having money problems, but would pay him back. It was the wrong answer. Lucchese casually reached for Rubinoff's hand. And Tommy said, you know, you got beautiful hands. What a shame it would be that anything would ever happen to those hands. Lucchese told the violinist he wanted to talk it over in the back alley behind the restaurant. Oh, boy. Rubinoff was terrified. And the guy said, Tommy, I'll have your money tomorrow morning. I swear. Sounds good. That's nice. See you tomorrow morning. Rubinoff didn't waste time. The next day, he paid his debt back in full. As usual, Tommy Lucchese got what he wanted. Yeah, that guy would have lost his violinist career right there. would have broke his hands, man. That's what he was going to do. He was going to take that boy out back and put the beats on him or shoot him. And he wouldn't have been able to play violin anymore. So that would have been bad. And just so you guys know, one of the crimes that the mafia is notorious for is something called loan sharking, right? And I really... Guys, real fast. If you didn't see episode one, please mm -hmm. go back and watch episode one. We covered this last week on Sunday um, where we went up over the mafia's um, origins, how they got to the United States, uh, the crimes that they're involved in, all that stuff. And we talked about loan sharking. But just as a quick little summary for you guys, and we went over hierarchies, all that stuff, and the terms, all that. Okay, so we talk about made guy. We talk about a consigliere, a capo, blah, blah, blah. We went over all that stuff. So that, you know, we cover the families, you guys kind of know. But anyway, loan sharking, guys, is basically lending money out at a very high interest rate, okay? And a lot of times, it's kind of like they lend the money out at a high interest rate, knowing that the individual isn't going to be able to pay back. And what they're able to do is they say, oh, you can't pay back. Now we own your business, right? They say that the, the famous quote, use work for me now. That's basically what it comes down to. So they loan the money. You know, you either pay it back with a super high interest or they basically get their tentacles into your business and they now start to get a cut. So it's a win-win for them either way. The odd thing about Tommy Lucchese's success was he didn't look the part. Uh, he was uh, five feet, two inches tall, and probably didn't work. And the boss of the, car, uh, the Gambino family, Carlo Gambino, he was also very short and didn't look intimidating. Weighing more than 105 pounds. Which we covered him last week as well, guys, if you want to get into the Gambino family, which was... Probably the most powerful fam family of the five New York crime families. But don't be fooled by appearances. He'd kill you in a heartbeat if he thought you were going to get in his way. Ellis Island, New York. In 1910, it was the gateway to America for millions of immigrants. The masses included an 11-year-old Sicilian boy, Gaetano Tommy Lucchese. The Lucchese squeezed into an apartment in New York City's East Harlem. Italian gangs ruled the street. Guys, in the early 1900s, a bunch of Italians came here from Sicily, right, in Italy. And uh, this kind of... Uh, created a, a huge market for Italian organized crime, especially with the emergence of prohibition, which we're going to see here in a bit. 
They'd shake down the local store owners for payoffs. And if someone didn't play along, all bets were off. They were preying on their own immigrant stock, the Italian-American gangs. They and this is the practice of extortion, guys, where basically, hey, you got to pay us a protection fee, right? And I say that with, with air quotes here. The pro you got to pay us protection fee or else we're going to mess your stuff up, which is hilarious because you're basically paying to protect yourself from them when they're supposed to protect you. But, hey, you know, it is what is it? Forget about it. They appear to be more violent. They're more, more willing to commit murders and intimidate people. Tommy's father earned an honest living, hauling concrete day in and day out. Each day, Tommy watched his dad work himself to death, while thugs in the neighborhood earned an easy living through rackets. As a teenager, Tommy ran with a band of young criminals. They called themselves the 107th Street Gang. Tommy got mixed up very quickly with these uh, street hoods. Uh, kids would run around robbing peddlers. Anything that wasn't nailed down, they would try to steal, break into places, uh, burglary, uh, stealing goods off trucks, anything where they could turn a fast buck. Tommy answered to the gang's leader, another Sicilian named Charles Lucky Luciano. Lucchese's parents didn't like what they were seeing. They pushed him to get a steady job and soon. And guys, Lucky Luciano is a critical, basically they call him the godfather of organized crime um, because he was instrumental in getting the five family set up and the commission in the United States after the, um, God damn it, how do I pronounce that? That war, that big war that they Maranzano. had. That, no, yeah, but he was Casta involved. Uh, there you go. Yeah, the Castamalari's Ca uh, war, um, which we go again, we go into detail, guys, on that more in the first episode. The first Please episode, watch yes. that. So you guys truly understand the importance of Lucky Luciano, how he was involved with Mayor Lansky, a.k.a. part of them boys. You know what I'm saying? Uh, with with the them boys mafia. Um, but we explain all that in the first place. But if you don't know who Lucky Luciano is, pause this podcast right now. Go back and watch episode one. OK, so that this all makes sense for you. Lucchese went to work. He got a job in a machine shop. Uh, during which time there was a bad accident that sliced off the thumb and forefinger of his right hand, leaving him with three fingers. The accident convinced him that no good would ever come from a respectable job. Lucchese quit and returned to his gang before long. Yeah, he said, screw this. I'm not working hard jobs no more, man. I'm just going to rob people instead. <laughs> Rumors of his Easier. criminal deeds reached Back. his parents. They were very upset that he clearly was drifting into a life of crime. The family was appalled because they were quite convinced that he would bring shame on them as a criminal. Lucchese's dad kicked Tommy out of the house. He moved into a tenement apartment and joined up with his other family, the members of the 107th Street Gang. Tommy hit the streets, hustling and stealing from anyone in East Harlem. It was a kind of juvenile crime that was very prevalent in the neighborhood, and he was no exception. Uh, but almost from the start, he seemed to be a little more clever than some of the other kids. So he, he was almost automatically a leader. 
1917, 18-year-old Lucchese came up with a scheme to shake down store owners, an extortion racket disguised as a window cleaning business. He would go to uh, a merchant had a big, beautiful storefront window and say, um, I have a window cleaning service that is superior to every other cleaning service you can use. The idea was if you didn't go along with the scheme, they'd break your window. So it would cost you. <laughs> Talk about entrepreneurship. Hey, I got my window cleaning business. If you guys don't participate in the window cleaning business, it's going to be a window broken business for you. Okay. Forget about it. Next thing you know, the store owner's like, oh my God. Mamma mia. All right, I'll pay up. <laughs> Hundreds of dollars instead of uh, uh, maybe $50 a week. And after a while, people in East Harlem got the message, which is that if you wanted to keep your windows intact and have them clean at the same time, the Lucchese window cleaning service was the way to go. That's hilarious, bro. You either, you either get your windows clean or get your windows cleaned out, baby. Okay? <laughs> Young Lucchese raked in the cash hand over fist. It was his first foray into organized crime and a long way from his dad's job hauling concrete. But Tommy was not a common street thug. He used his brain to develop rackets for his gang. Nobody brought in money like Tommy Lucchese. This was an... And a racket, guys, is basically a scheme that they develop where they're able to earn money through some type of criminal activity. So, for example, we got a gambling racket. Let's say they got a, a house set up where they, you know, take bets and they got bookies and all that other stuff. That's one racket. Then on the other side, they're extorting people for the window cleaning businesses, you see. That's another racket. Then they got, you know, guys that are uh, shaking down other crooks and maybe stealing their money or stealing their dope, whatever it may be. That's another racket. So every criminal Crime. endeavor that they're okay. involved in, right, where they're earning money, that is considered a racket when it comes to the mafia. Absolute criminal with a total criminal mind. By the early 1920s, a powerful mobster named Joseph Masseria reached out to Lucchese and to the leader of his gang, Lucky Luciano. Uh, okay, so now we're going to get into, um, probably they might cover the war here with uh, the Castamillaris war. Masseria ruled Manhattan with an iron fist. On the street, people called him Joe the Boss. Joe the boss could recognize criminal talent when he saw it. He hired Luciano and Lucchese as hitmen, and they went to work right away. Tommy committed an estimated 30 murders for his new boss. Holy, what the? What? Tommy out here murking people. What the fuck? Lucchese had come a long way from window cleaning scams. Now, he was a killer. Yet in and keep in mind, guys, this is the 19... 20s pretty much there was a sophisticated police investigative techniques to be able to identify these individuals man murder was really tough to solve back then you don't got forensics you don't got dna you don't got um the same crime scene investigative investigative capacity you know this is why uh a lot of criminals like their heyday was their early 1900s you know all the way up until the 2000s damn near i mean the serial killer golden era was from the 60s all the way up until the 90s, right? Ending with, I would say, like the Jeffrey Dahmer era. Why? Because DNA became a huge thing after that point. So it was very difficult to serve, uh, sorry, solve violent crime, especially murders in situations like this. And also keep in mind, RICO laws were no, not yet in effect. Those didn't come in until the 70s. Spider and it was because of the mafia. 
The body count, Lucchese managed to avoid jail time. He had a reputation for brutality and used that to intimidate witnesses. In 1921, at the age of 22, the cops caught Tommy stealing an expensive car, a Packard. And with the arrest came a nickname from the police. And when it came the time for him to be um, uh, booked, he had to go through the usual process, one of which was his fingerprints. One of the uh, detectives or police officers who was fingerprinting him noticed that he had a mangled right hand. At the time, there was a very uh, celebrated, terrific pitcher for the Chicago Cubs known as Mordecai Three-Finger Brown. The cop nicknamed his suspect Tommy Three-Finger Brown Lucchese. <laughs> you imagine if he did that now, they'd be like, oh, my God, bullying. Ah. Yes. They didn't give a shit back then in the 20s, though. The cops were like, hey, you three-fingered fuck. Forget about <laughs> it. Lucchese never liked that name, but he was stuck with it. And for the first time in his life, Lucchese received a criminal conviction. But prison time would do nothing to change Lucchese. He wanted money and power and was willing to kill anyone to get it. In the early 1920s, it seemed Tommy Lucchese could kill anyone in New York's East Harlem at any time. No one dared to testify against him. He got away with everything. That is, until the police caught him stealing a car and locked him up. Until he got arrested for auto theft, Mr. Lucchese got away with everything. As it turned out, that was the last time he was ever in prison for anything. Sing Sing Prison on the Hudson River north of New York City was one of the nation's oldest and toughest prisons. The state sent some of the worst mobsters up the river to Sing Sing. Tommy fit in just fine. 13 months later, the state... And this is Sing Sing Prison right here, guys. Uh, famous prison up in New York. Uh, Sing Sing Correctional Facility, formerly uh, All Sing Sing Correctional Facility, is a maximum security uh, prison operated by the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision in the village of Ossining, New York. It is about 30 miles north of New York City on the east bank of the Hudson River, holds about 1,700 inmates and housed uh, the execution chamber for the state of New York until the uh, abolition of capital punishment in New York in 2004. The name Sink Sink was derived from the Sint uh, Sink Native American tribe from whom the land was purchased in 1685. It was formerly the name of the village in 1970. The prison's uh, name was changed to the Osingning, uh, whatever, okay. correctional facility, but it reverted to its original name in 1985. There are plans to convert the original 1825 cell back into a period uh, museum. That's museum. crazy. Wow. That's the prison crazy. property is uh, bisected by the Metro North Railroad's four-track Hudson line. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Does it still exist here? Let's see here. Hmm, maybe Bro, not. This is in the beginning, like right here. like. Yeah. So, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, anyone from New York that's a criminal has heard of Sing Sing, so. Paroled Lucchese. Tommy returned to New York, the free man. 
back in East Harlem, the Roaring Twenties had taken over Lucchese's old neighborhood. In order to clamp down on booze-related crime, the U.S. government amended the Constitution to include prohibition. But on the streets of New York, locals continued to drink alcohol and crime exploded. Lucchese saw an opportunity. The government made liquor illegal, but there was still a big demand for it. But Tommy worked for Joe Masseria, an ill-tempered boss who had fought his way to the top, taking out everyone in his way. He had a stranglehold on power in the family and had no interest in working with gangsters that weren't Italian. Tommy's generation called members of the old guard like Masseria the Mustache Peets. Masseria wanted to produce low-grade bathtub gin and sell it to the neighborhood drunks. He treated bootlegging like a small-time con. It frustrated Lucchese and his fellow gangster, Lucky Luciano. They and guys, keep in mind that he didn't want to work with other people, and there are a bunch of other organized crime individuals at this point in New York that they could be making money with. You had the Jews, you had the Albanians, you had Russians, etc. And Lucky Luciano wanted to work with all these guys and make more money. But Masseria had issues because, quite frankly, he was a racist. If you weren't Sicilian, he had an issue with you. He didn't even like other Italians a lot of the times. He wanted straight Sicilians. So this created a lot of rift with Luciano, who was actually very close with who? Marilansky and them boys. You know who I'm saying. Um, so he was making a lot of money with these guys, and they didn't like that. And, um, and the other thing, too, is that Prohibition guys created an enormous opportunity for the La Costa Nostra to make a bunch of money because people wanted booze. So obviously mm -hmm. he wasn't taking a business serious. He's bootlegging like bullshit in the tub. They could be making way more money. And, you know, they're looking at it like, bro, you're in the way of us making money. You're, you're, you're thinking way too small time. There's way too much money to be made here. And you guys are going to see if you watch back episode one. Lucky Luciano is all about making the money, man. Okay, that's why I got along with them boys so much, if you know what I'm saying. Explain all this in the, in the first episode. Yes. I knew it could be so much more. The young generation said... This is stupid. That's not where the money is. People with lots of money who are accustomed to spending a lot of money on the finest possible whiskey and scotch they could buy. Do you think they're going to drink this rot gut you're producing? Are you crazy? Look at your market. The real market is downtown in Manhattan. Masseria disagreed with Lucchese and Luciano. He hated their philosophy but couldn't ignore the incredible profits. To make their plan work, Lucchese and Luciano convinced Masseria to smuggle high-quality foreign liquor into the U.S. and sell it to the speakeasies. Everybody drank. The general public viewed it as just a silly law, and it was not a big deal to break this law. As a result, liquor was big business, and Lucchese would work with Jews in the city, not just Italians. He would work with any ethnic group. He had no prejudice against working with Jewish gangsters. People like Lucchese said, look, the Jews are teaching us certain finer points of organized crime. We need them, and they need us. In the late 1920s, Masseria declared war on rival mobster Salvatore Maranzano. And this, my friends, is the beginning of that war that we told you guys about, the Castamalari's War. Each man wanted to control New York's underworld by himself. Nearly 100 gangsters died in street battles. 
Tommy Lucchese and Lucky Luciano sided with their boss, Masseria, but wanted the bloodshed to end. Luciano saw this as bad ad Really bad for business. Advertising. You couldn't have bodies strewn all over the streets and not expect somehow the city and the city government and the police department to respond. Luciano knew blood was bad for business. Masseria had to go. Lucchese and Luciano drew up a cunning plan for a hostile takeover of the New York underworld. Taking out Masseria first, then his rival, Maranzano. Oh, double cross, man. Gotcha, bitch. But they looked at it like these guys are bad for business because both these dudes are super hard-headed. They're both from the old city. Uh, the, they're both from, you know, the old land and have an old-school mindset with how um, organized crime should be. Very racist. Didn't want to work with anyone else. Very stuck in their ways. Not open to making a lot of money. More open to doing things the old-school way, which obviously deals with violence and hurts business. So they're like, fuck this shit. Get, let's get rid of both oh, of these all guys. All these guys have income and that their greediness. Great. What was that How do you say greed? When a they're person greed? is like greedy. Yes, their greediness. Yeah. That. Yes. Like they all want us to be like the bosses. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. And and I think the biggest thing with these guys is they want it to be the boss at any cost. They don't care if it like makes them lose money. Whereas yeah. like someone like Lucky Luciano didn't care at all because Luciano ends up getting power. Yeah. And he says, you know what? I'm gonna delegate the power to the commission. I got my family. I'm I'm the boss of my family, but I'm gonna delegate the power to the rest of y'all. And you guys are going to see that here in a bit. And I'll go into more detail on this on the first episode, which I really think you guys should go see it if you haven't seen it already. Casey was in the middle of it, playing off one side against the other, pretending he was allied with somebody while double-crossing them at the same time. The plan was flawless. Lucchese would secretly meet with Maranzano and pledge his allegiance. Luciano would then take out Masseria, clearing the way for Maranzano to become the most powerful mobster in New York City. On April 15th, 1931, at a restaurant on Brooklyn's Coney Island, four gunmen burst in on Joe Masseria. They riddled Masseria. He was killed instantly. And they put the ace of spades there on him. Crime scene photos show Masseria with the ace of spades in his hand a sign of bad luck in some circles. Next, with Masseria at so they betray their boss. Of the way, Lucchese and Luciano moved on Maranzano. It was up to Lucchese to find a way to knock him off. Lucchese was very intelligent and he snooped around, found out what was going on. Posing as a disaffected member of Luciano's group, Lucchese infiltrated Maranzano's organization. Tommy learned that Maranzano worried about a possible audit from the IRS. Uh -huh. Tommy's uh, great strength as an organized criminal was his ability to read people and to find out where you were vulnerable. Maranzano told his bodyguards in the office uh, at the Grand Central uh, Tower not to carry guns anymore because he didn't want them to be busted on uh, gun charges when the IRS guy showed up. On September 10th, 1931, four men showed up at Maranzano's office in Grand Central Station. They said they were with the IRS. Without any announcement, three people claiming to be from the IRS walked into the office. And strangely enough, 
uh, Three Finger Brown Lucchese was there. The men weren't IRS agents. They were Lucchese's hitmen. Everybody was lined up. These guys pulled out guns, and Lucchese had a prearrangement with these killers. He made a nod of his head to who was Maranzano. They knifed him and shot him, and he was finished. And just so you guys know, Luciano and Lucchese used who? Them boys to help uh, carry out these hits. Them boys were absolutely involved in helping kill these individuals. With Masseria and Maranzano out of the picture, Lucchese and Luciano could build a criminal empire. The deal was simple. Get in line with Lucchese or get wiped out. In 1931, Tommy Lucchese and Lucky Luciano took out their biggest competition in New York, an older generation of monsters called the Mustache Peets. Lucchese Luciano sat atop the criminal underworld. They were now in a position to rewrite the rules of organized crime in New York City. It would pave the way for Lucchese's rise to power. Luciano had a new take on crime. He urged the city's top mobsters to stop fighting and work together. He had a simple strategy. Give each family autonomous control over different criminal enterprises. Traditional Italian. Bam. And that, my friends, was the beginning of the um, five crime families of New York. It actually started with uh, Maserati. Uh, but the thing with him is that he wanted to be called the boss of all bosses, and that obviously put a target on his back. So when Luciano took power, instead of him saying, oh, I'm the boss of all bosses and being a pompous prick, he said, no, I'm going to just have my family, the rest of y'all run your families, and then we're going to meet every couple of years with the commission to make big decisions, whether there's a fight in the family or whatever it may be, and handle it that way. That's how Luciano did it, because he didn't want to get in the way of the money, and he was smart enough to understand that if I become try to claim boss of all bosses, I'm going to end up where they're going to put a target on my back. And he was smart enough to understand he didn't want that target yeah, on his back. Yeah, that was a very that smart money. decision. Yes, very him. smart decision by Lucky Luciano. And organized crime, as we know it today, was formed in 1931 when Luciano created the five organized crime families in New York. Luciano said the best way for our survival is by not drawing attention to ourselves and to expanding our economic empire. Luciano took his business model one step further. Each family had a chain of command with a boss at the top. The structure of organized crime is very, very simple. You have a boss, you have an underboss, a conciliary soldier, and the soldier has a lot of associates. The bosses were virtually uh, immune from prosecution because they never pulled the trigger. They and we go into more detail, guys, as far as the mafia hierarchy in episode one, where I actually show you a chart and we go over each individual, how people become made, a.k.a. become, uh, you know, a, a soldier, so to speak, for the family and, um, you know, the rituals, all that stuff. We go into and we go over the definitions and terms. Timestamps are there. Go back to refer to episode one. If any of these terms confuse you uh, and we go into detail there and show you guys a visual.
of how the structure is actually set up for La Cosa Nostra. Never roughed up anybody. For the most part, uh, trying to prove a conspiracy case against it would have been impossible. For a low-profile mobster like Lucchese, the families provided an ideal shelter for his rackets. The other mobsters respected Luciano, and he, in turn, respected his old right-hand man. Luciano rewarded Tommy Lucchese by giving him a very top role in one of the five gangs. Tommy Lucchese became the number two man in a very important family, known as the Gagliano family. At the age of 32, Tommy Lucchese took his place as one of the top mobsters in the city. But unlike Luciano, who lived in a suite on Park Avenue, Lucchese and his family lived in a modest home in New Jersey. He didn't want to draw attention to his business. Then, in the early 1930s, Lucchese and Luciano looked ahead to a time after Prohibition. We're going to have to have something to replace it. And it's got to be something big because <laughs> this is a lot of money we're getting in from Prohibition, hundreds of millions of dollars. In 1933, their prediction came true. Which, by the way, guys, equivalent to today's dollars, they were making billions on Prohibition by bootlegging and providing alcohol and providing the liquor for these speakeasies. Prohibition ended. Lucchese didn't miss a beat. He used his connections with Jewish mobsters to make money on the side. In, of all things, the kosher chicken business. This is crazy, guys. Let's. <laughs> these guys always find a way to make money. You got to give it to the fucking mafia, man. They always find a way to scheme it, man. Kosher chicken, bruh? Come on. Let's see how they did this one. At that time in New York in the early 30s, the kosher chicken business was a very big business, but it was very competitive, and there was a lot of disarray. Lucchese discovered a very small, highly specialized union at the heart of the business. Unlike mainstream slaughterhouses, kosher chickens have to be butchered by hand and only by a select group of certified rabbis. They were the kosher qualified butchers who did the actual work preparing the chicken. It was a father-son union, meaning it took you 20 or 30 years to master this. So if they went on strike, you're in trouble because you can't simply say, okay, you know, call the employment agency and get me a couple of coke. No, it doesn't work that way. And what will that do? Create a lot of opportunity, which creates what? Money, guys. Them boys. You know what I'm saying? And the other thing, too, guys, just so you know, um, you know, whether it's the Islamic faith, whether it's the Jewish faith, keep in mind, guys, that a lot of people prefer to have their meat kosher. It's not just Jews that eat kosher meat. Muslims as well eat kosher meat. So uh, that's just the way it is, man. So obviously this is a very lucrative business to get into. He secretly took control of the union. And, and very religious Christians as well, right, uh, uh, Angie? Uh, really religious Christians as well? I mean, you tell me. Eat co prefer to eat kosher? Or but, um... for chicken or meat or whatever it may be? Or does it not matter for you guys? Mm, no. Doesn't Kosher doesn't matter? Okay. No. Right. 
But for Muslims and Jews, it does. Uh, that's why uh, you know, you know, if you're uh, if you're Muslim, you can always eat at a uh, you know at a kosher you know location. If they if it's kosher, that means it's good for you as well or halal in this. In this oh, case. you ask like as in like in religion? Yeah. yeah. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for no. y'all, right? Okay. Well, yeah, you guys eat pork too, so that's different. Yeah. Versus uh, Muslims and Jews don't it's eat just, pork. It, it does matter when it's like Easter, like in Easter week. Uh huh. That's when we can like not eat meat. Most like we cannot eat meat, oh, okay. In Easter, but All that's right. it. But as far as it being kosher, it's irrelevant, then. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, but yeah, for for Jews and Muslims, it's a big thing. Uh, kosher meat is considered halal in the Islamic faith. Noon, the entire industry, he moved in and, in effect, created a cartel in which every aspect of the kosher chicken business would be controlled by him. Uh, the slaughtering. Uh, the distribution, the transportation. Lucchese set prices and controlled the contracts. Ironically, the manufacturers appreciated Lucchese's efforts because he promised them a portion of the market. They're not unhappy about it. Because at one time you could get wiped out in a season if your competitor came and undercut you by two cents a pound. Now you are guaranteed a certain portion of the market as long as you cooperate. He benefited everybody, he thought. He benefited the, uh, the merchants, the slaughterers, uh, the transporters, and mostly himself. Lucchese's scheme did not benefit his customers. What happened was the cost was passed along to the consumer. People who wanted kosher chicken. He said, fuck the customers. <laughs> Y'all want kosher chicken? Y'all want to be religious? Okay. Get this chicken, baby. He had no choice. Now, did he worry about a price revolt or consumer? No, of course not. Devout Jews, where else are they going to get chickens? Muslims too, where are you going to get your chicken? You know, I remember as a kid growing up, guys, uh, I remember this vividly. Um, when I lived in Brooklyn, we used to go to the Jewish part of uh, Brooklyn. I think it was like 13th Avenue or something like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, for any of you guys that live there now. Um, and the, like it was all a bunch of um, Jewish markets over there. And we used to go there to get our meat, our chicken, etc., because it was kosher and we can eat that. It was it was it was a halal, so that's where we used to go to get our our meat and produce. So yeah, I mean, it, a lot of people eat kosher only, guys. It's a big market, especially back then with all the immigrants that were in in New York at the time. They gotta buy kosher chickens, okay? They paid the price, and it was the first big mafia tax. But Tommy Lucchese wasn't satisfied. He wanted control of one of New York's biggest businesses, and he would take it by force. New York mobster Tommy Lucchese had a knack for business. During Prohibition, he turned bootlegging into a full-scale operation. And now, in 1933, he controlled the kosher chicken industry. Lucchese used brains instead of brawn to get his way. For decades, New York City's garment district has been the nation's center of fashion design and manufacturing. At one time, the 40 square block area of Midtown Manhattan shipped more than a third of the clothing sold in the United States. And in the 20s and 30s, Tommy Lucchese the Gambino family, guys, if you watch that episode as well, were also really big into the garment district as well. Casey found it ripe for picking. 
Tommy Lucchese always had a connection with the garment industry. First, during Prohibition, Lucchese could be counted on to supply clothing manufacturers with booze. You went to see Tommy, who said, listen, I got a couple of buyers coming in. Do me a favor, Tommy, can you get me liquor? And I gotta have the top stuff, A number one top stuff. Lucchese would oblige, and the profits he made from bootlegging allowed him to venture into another mob business, loan sharking. On the heels of the stock market crash, Americans were left desperate for money. Many of them turned to mobsters for help. The Shylocking or loan sharking business just blocked. Because the mafia were the only ones that were heavy in cash. They had more money than the banks. So, of course, they could go ahead and lend out loans on super high interest. Awesome in the Great Depression because it was an easy source of money for people that didn't have access to banks. The loan and no credit check, just a kneecap check. <laughs> came with exorbitant interest rates, but Lucchese wouldn't hesitate to use violence or threats when people didn't pay him back. The depression hit businesses just as bad. They needed money to bail them out. The banks were shutting down. Businesses needed money. They didn't necessarily have the type of collateral that a bank, if the bank was able to even lend out money. With cash saved up from his prohibition rackets, Lucchese could bail out any business in the garment district. He also figured out almost every season or a couple of times a year, many of the garment center manufacturers were short on cash. They had sold, say, the spring line and they were trying to bring out the summer line or the winter line, but they needed money. And there's Tommy saying, hey, I have a solution for you. Need money, I've got the money. So I got plenty of money. These guys had like all the money in New York and they wanted like more money. <laughs> Pretty much. And, and it's funny because it's like, it's crazy because like if these guys had just put a little bit of effort in and weren't criminals, they have like some entrepreneurial mindsets. Like yeah. they're making money from the kosher chicken, they're making money from the alcohol, they're making money from the garment stuff, and they're just reinvesting it right back into their businesses. Now they're good. Now they're basically lending money out. They're a bank now, so uh, you know entrepreneurial mindset. They but obviously wanted, they had to be criminals. They wanted all the money. Yeah, they wanted all the money. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone is broke as hell, but you know what? We got money. Y'all need your new line? It's okay. We got you. Just go ahead and pay us this tax. <laughs> and he becomes the number one loan officer for the garment industry. My man called it, became a loan officer. <laughs> Lucchese preyed on the district with so-called knockdown loans, short-term loans with sky-high interest rates. Tommy knew most people couldn't pay him back right away, and the interest would pile up. It was one of the most lucrative loan sharking deals ever invented. The repayment conditions were stringent on the clothing manufacturers in order to ensure no credit score check, just a kneecap check. <laughs> Break your kneecaps. Forget about it. A hefty return for the lender, Tommy Lucchese. Often these people could never pay you off right away. So he doubled his money and it continued for a long time. And at what's the height a, of the depression in the 30s. What's, what's a was, high interest? Um... Yeah, oh, percentage. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't like lending them this money on like 20 to 50 percent interest rate, something crazy like that. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
Yep, and it's like he's lending Jesus. them this money because they're desperate and they can't get it anywhere else. Of course. And he knows He's that... taking advantage. Exactly. And here's the other thing. He knows they're not going to be able to pay him back. So what does he do? Oh, well, now I own a portion of your business. Oh, shit. That's another way that That's... they would get involved. Wow. Yep. Yep. It's actually a really easy way to get in because you know they're not going to pay you back. Now you own a portion of their business. Of course, in a very smart way, too. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Getting $5 million a year. Lucchese. Five million dollars a year doing this, bro. Extorting basically loan sharking people. Let's see what that is. Exploited the loan sharking racket to get inside garment businesses and to take control. Eventually, a lot of these businesses couldn't pay the money back. As a result, they got a new partner. And they got a very dominant partner that started calling the shots. He's known as the calmest loan Five million dollars in the nineteen thirty in nineteen thirty is the equivalent to ninety million three hundred seventy thousand and fifty nine dollars and eighty nine eighty eight cents today. Key. Wow, bro, this guy was out here robbing them clean. Mamma mia! you've ever met in your life. Look, you can't pay. Here's what I do: I take your business, or I take a piece of it. Before long. Tommy's got dozens of businesses I can't he even controls process that either overtly <laughs> or secretly uh, in the garment industry. Lucchese had already used his loan sharking operation to muscle in on the fashion industry. But his next move grabbed the garment district by the throat. He infiltrated the Clothes Cutters Union, a powerful group that could shut down the entire garment industry by going on strike. In controlling this union, Lucchese could charge his competitors any fee at any time. This is another very common tactic, guys, with the mafia. They infiltrate unions and they're able to control the labor force. When you're able to control the labor force, you're able to control everything else. Pricing, wages, uh, contracts, etc. And the mafia is notorious for doing this, guys, whether it was uh, labor unions in construction, in, um, mm. in the political world, in the garment district. And fucking meat, uh, as you guys saw with the kosher situation, uh, the kosher meat situation, they would infiltrate unions like nobody's business, uh, man. Mar, I'm pretty sure you explained this in the first video, but can you remind me what a union is? Basically, it's a a, a union is like a, think of it like a, it's a union, a, literally a union it's a, it's an of all the workers, right? Of all the workers, and what it does is it allows them protection across the entire spectrum of all the employees. And they get certain rights and privileges and oh, okay. and certain, you know, um, you know, certain accesses, like right. you know, they get a pension, all these things. They like they basically fight for workers' rights together. Right. So like you if you're gonna try to fire this guy, then you gotta go through the union. So what it does is it's like strength in numbers and it helps protect everyone's job and benefits. Yeah, I remember I do think I think yes, you you did explain it in the first video, yeah. I think. Yeah. And a lot of these like, you know, blue collar jobs are unionized jobs, and if the mafia is able to infiltrate them, bam. Now they control that industry because the unions run the industry because if they go on strike, they're fucked. And you can't really fire them because they're protected by who? The union. So the mafia was smart and infiltrated it from the workers' perspective with the unions versus infiltrating it from the top. Sometimes they'll do both. They'll close it at the, at the middle. They'd infiltrate the top and they'd also infiltrate the unions like, the, like you see Lucchese doing right now. And bam, now they got a stranglehold on that industry. So they're able to exploit it to the highest degree. Tommy Lucchese, who saw there was yeah, a lot facts. of money in corruption. If you could take them over, you could have a steady stream of money. If they went on strike, what would happen? <laughs> Everything comes to a halt. You can't do it without these people. You cannot replace them. As in the kosher chicken racket, 
Lucchese controlled a key part of the assembly line. Manufacturers paid Tommy to keep the factory moving. Now here's what made it beautiful. The manufacturers didn't complain. Why? Because Tommy said, you're not gonna pay these extra costs. You're gonna pass that price on to every American who buys clothes. But after Lucchese stepped in, he also gained control of the trucking union, whose drivers shipped the clothing. Guess what? There's only one trucking firm you were allowed to use at one set price. Don't like the price? <laughs> Carry them yourself. <laughs> Get a whole See how these guys just muscle in on all these different industries? Now they got the trucker union, they got the garment yeah. union, they got all they got the ch kosher chicken union. Like, bro. These dudes are just controlling all these different industries, making all this money. Yeah, they had all the power. Loan sharking, all this stuff. And this is why, the, the, guys, the United States, especially New York City, etc., these cities were built on the back of La Cosa Nostra. This, this is terrifying. Yeah, they had, they had a lot of power back then. It seemed that Lucchese could corrupt any type of business, even City Hall. Holy. Next, Tommy Lucchese would use his influence on New York politicians. Bribery was a big thing back then, too. During the Great Depression, while Corruption most Americans just finest. managed yep. to scrape by, mobster Tommy Lucchese raked in the cash, running rackets in the New York Garment District. And he did it all from behind the scenes. No one kept a lower profile than Tommy Lucchese. It was hard to trace. It was not as if you could walk down the street and see a sign in the window of a, of a garment center firm that said, we're now mafia controlled. So much of what was happening was invisible. Lucchese steered clear of trouble. He paid off the cops to keep his rap sheet clean. These mobsters could walk into a police station and pay off these cops that were making $10 a week for walking a beat and they could pay off politicians who were not under the same kind of scrutiny that politicians are today. $10, guys, back then was uh, 100, in 1930 was $180 today. Tommy Lucchese had made him. So they weren't getting paid shit, maybe like $600 a month. Name for himself by controlling businesses. But he knew in today's dollars, of course, politicians could be manipulated just as easily. Tommy understood that you cannot have organized crime without corruption, period. Simple. Can't do it. And so he was known for his assiduous courting of people that he knew he could corrupt and who were in a position to be very, very helpful. And remember, guys, I want to make this very clear. Back in the 1930s, this is way before RICO laws and organized crime. This is before Kennedy got in office and wanted to, go, you know, get serious on organized crime, which is a big part of the reason why he got killed, by the way. We'll talk about that with Ryan Dawson with John F. Kennedy and what ended up getting him killed. There was a combination of organized crime, them boys, and uh, some other things that got Kennedy killed. But this is way before all of this. Organized crime was going crazy in the 20s all the way up into the 70s when they created RICO laws and they didn't really take take them into full effect until 1985 when they arrested uh members of the commission so it took damn near 60 years for not even like seven years for the united states to figure this out and come up with laws that can attack organized crime 
uh, on a more on a more robust basis where they can actually take these guys down and keep them down versus them getting pinched here and there and them being able to intimidate witnesses and pay politicians off all that other crap. In 1945, Tommy flexed his political muscle. In the race for city council president, he backed Vincent Impelitari, an unknown law clerk. Sicilian-born Impelitari didn't have a chance. He wanted the post and didn't even know if he could get on the ballot. But he had one thing going for him, Lucchese. In the end, Impelitari won the seat. Lucchese now had the city council president in his back pocket. The guy who could barely run and he ends up winning the freaking thing, bruh. Forget about it. You know, you, you know, he was beating up some people to get that freaking thing, running people over and all types of shit, man. Breaking kneecaps, making people swim with the fishes. Mamma mia! In 1950, a police corruption scandal forced Mayor William O'Dwyer to resign. Impelitary then won a special election and took his place as mayor. Wow. He turned out to be one of the worst mayors New York ever had. He was totally incompetent. And nevertheless, um, it didn't matter. It mattered to the mob. They still had this pipeline to City Hall. One night, reporters caught Impelitari at dinner with Lucchese. The mayor of New York was breaking bread with a mobster, and it didn't look good. When they went over to Impelitari later and said, do you know who he is? He said, all I know is he's a dress manufacturer. The mayor played dumb. Ah, smart. The story never turned into a scandal. Lucchese even... Yeah, I, definitely, I bet it did it, because he told them boys, hey, you guys want to go out and publish that story? That's cool. We'll see what happens to you. And then they're going to... Forget about it! You, motherfucker. <laughs> ben had the police in his corner. Tommy paid them to look the other way, allowing him to run his rackets without fear of repercussion. Now, with that... How active do you think the New York City Police Department was in pursuing one Tommy Lucchese for any crimes? Not very much, I can guarantee you. But that's how he protected himself. Could you imagine, like, ah, uh, let's just go after the black people. <laughs> 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 yeah, we're just going to go after the black people. Okay, don't, don't mess with these Italians. Let, let's go get uh, Jerome and Jamal and all them. Oh, my God. <laughs> By 1951... Lucchese had been underboss of the Gagliano crime family for nearly 20 years. As underboss, Tommy oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the family's crews and rackets. In February of that year, Gagliano died of natural causes. After his death, Lucchese stepped in as the next crime boss. He was the obvious choice. He was among the most uh, admired people uh, within the Mafia. Nobody brought in money like Tommy Lucchese. His performance in places like the Garment Center and the kosher chicken industry made him uh, a much talked about man within the Mafia. And shout out to him for taking over the kosher chicken with them boys, right? And that comes off of him working with uh, Lucky Luciano, who had a very tight connection with uh, Mayor Lansky and all them other boys, if you know what I'm saying. So they were able to go ahead and muscle in on that industry and make quite a bit of money. And on top of that, what were they able to do? Make the money for the industry people, pass that cost on to the um, to the customers, and they made a fuck ton of money, guys. Lucchese celebrated the promotion by upgrading his lifestyle. He and his wife, Conchetta, left the New Jersey suburbs and built a custom home in upscale Lido Beach on the south shore of Long Island. His neighbors, 
took notice of his unusual guest list. It seemed rather odd, the strange parade of politicians, police officials, and all judges, all kinds of prominent people into Lucchese house. Then, in the early 1950s, the walls began to close in on the mob. And this time, Tommy couldn't rely on payoffs to skate by. In Washington, U.S. Senator Estes Kefauver launched a series of hearings into organized crime, calling prominent gangsters like Frank Costello. You must have in your mind some things you've done that you can speak of to your credit as an American citizen. If so, what are they? So guys, they're calling them in, right, to testify under oath because they can do that. Um, and, you know, obviously, La Cosa Nostra doesn't want this, right? They're, they're, La Cosa Nostra means our thing, and they're supposed to take a code of silence called Omerta. So them talking about any type of organized crime is a big deal, and they shouldn't be doing this, obviously, in front of all these people under oath. So you guys are going to see some creative answers that these guys come up with here when asked about uh, the mafia. Tax. The hearings my aired on national television, thrusting mob. Right, the hearings aired on national That's television, thrusting mobsters soundboard. into a yeah. place they wanted to avoid at all costs: the national spotlight. Will you state to the committee uh, where you have been for the past six months? Have you been in Chicago? Remember, guys, he could take the Fifth Amendment and not answer these questions, even though he's being subpoenaed to testify. As usual, Lucchese's carefully maintained low profile served him well. The Kefauver Committee never questioned him. In 1952, however, Lucchese was called to testify before the New York State Crime Commission. Now 53 years old, Lucchese repeatedly cited his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. But five years later, Lucchese was unable to preserve his low profile. In November 1957, in Appalachian, New York, a state trooper followed up on a tip that dozens of mafia bosses were meeting in town. The group included Tommy Lucchese. As the cop pulled in the driveway, Everyone was there, guys. The Traficantes from Florida, the five crime families of New York, the guy, the, uh, Capone from, uh, from Chicago. Like, everybody was there, man. All the mob bosses from all over the country were there. So this was a huge hit for law enforcement. Lucchese and many others fled the scene on foot. Still, the discovery confirmed once and for all the existence of a national crime syndicate. The New York City police and other city police uh, had to recognize there is a structured organization. For nearly four decades, Lucchese had prided himself on his ability to keep a low profile, but his anonymity was now slipping away. In 1963, Joe Valacci dealt Lucchese and the Italian Mafia another blow. He went before a Senate committee and broke the Mafia pledge of Omerta, the Code of Silence by providing a And who was pushing this? John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert F. Kennedy. Killing inside look at the mob. Valachi identified the Lucchese family as one of the five New York Mafia families. Oh, and shit. Breaking it open.
Tommy as boss of the operation. Still, the feds didn't have enough to go on. Lucchese was free to continue his rackets and even rig fights in the ring. But Lucchese wasn't in the clear. A boxing scandal would soon make national headlines for the once low-profile crime boss. The fix was in. So you guys can see here that the tentacles of organized crime are literally touching all, you know, reaches of American culture. Sports, meat, clothes, alcohol, booze, gambling, everything. These guys are involved in, man. Lending money, goddammit. Holy. In the 1960s, New York mobster Tommy Lucchese operated a number of successful rackets. His next hustle would bring the house down. For decades, mobsters had loved the rough-and-tumble sport of boxing. Fighting, uh, boxing, and the mob were first cousins. Tommy Lucchese was no exception. He had been involved in boxing for years. His neighbors in Long Island took notice. They were always surprised that when there was a fight, major fight going on, they had a conversation with him. Uh, he would always give them a tip on who would win. And naturally, they never lost a bet if they uh, followed Lucchese's advice. He knew beforehand who was going to win. He knew the winner because the mobsters rigged the fights. There was always a talk about maybe this fight is fixed, maybe that fight is fixed. <laughs> betting, a lot of betting on, on boxing. Frankie Carbo ran the boxing racket for Lucchese. He maintained control over managers, trainers, and promoters. Carbo and his associates used intimidation to get their way. If you defied them, they'd kill you, or beat you up, or break your knees. You had no choice. And that's what happened to promoters and boxing managers. In 1960, <laughs> you better win or else forget about it. We're breaking your kneecaps. Then that's what they did, man. Infiltrated even professional sports. Before, Carbo arranged a heavyweight title fight between reigning champion Sonny Liston and Olympian Cassius Clay. Lucchese Associates had been managing Liston's career for years. Bookies and reporters picked Liston as the favorite. People said that Liston was going to annihilate him. Newspaper men picked him. I, I picked Liston uh, by a knockout. Most of us did. There was talk that Carbo used his influence to fix the fight. On February 25th, 1964, the pair took to the ring in Miami. There's the bell. Clay continues to circle, moving constantly to his left as Liston tries to move in on him. For six rounds, they fought a clean fight. But then Liston shocked the crowd. He refused to return to the ring after the sixth round. He knew he had to lose that fight. And if he got up off that stool, I went to the center of the ring again. There was a very real danger that he was going to win. By betting on the seven to one underdog, Cassius Clay, the mob cashed in on his win. 
Clay's camp denied any impropriety and called for a rematch. The next year, on May 25, 1965, the pair faced off in Lewiston, Maine. This time, there were even sharper allegations that the fight was fixed. In the first round, Clay, who had since changed his name to Muhammad Ali, jabbed Liston with a quick right while backing away. Liston now is head bobbing and goes to his knees from uh, a punch. It seemed like a harmless punch, but Liston unconvincingly fell to the ground, rolled over, climbed to his knees, and then fell again. Even to this day, there is controversy whether the fights were fixed. Sonny got hit. He, he fell down the best way he could and just lay there. So he went from, you know, sitting up vertically to lying down horizontally and to the paycheck. And, and that was it. The, the people who said that that was a, a tank job, I, I disagree with 100%. I've been in many ringsides and I saw that fight as clear as I could ever see it in person. My eyes saw a very good boxing performance of one man over the other. There was no dive there. Following the fights, Lucchese insulated himself from the front lines of illegal activity, as he had done for years. In the mid-1960s, Lucchese started to feel his age. He complained of chest pains, dizzy spells, and chronic headaches. Tommy withdrew from day-to-day -day mafia operations and spent an increasing amount of time at his home in Florida. The 66-year-old mobster then paid his doctor a visit. The doctors had devastating news. Lucchese had a brain tumor. They gave him a year to live. Despite all his money, despite everything he had, there was nothing medical science could do for him. Lucchese beat the odds and hung on for nearly two years, but he couldn't overcome cancer. On July 13, 1967, Tommy Lucchese died at his home in Lido Beach, Long Island. He was 68 years old. On his deathbed, um, Lucchese indicated he really didn't regret anything. More than a thousand people attended his funeral. Wow, that tells you right there. And then a thousand people, that means he had quite a bit of respect versus when other mob bosses die, a lot of times people don't show up. Carlo Gambino also had a bunch of people show up to his uh, funeral as well. So, but of course he ain't regret none. He made all that money, he killed all those people. You, well, know? you see, like, <laughs> cancer doesn't forgive money, doesn't see money, doesn't see anything. Like, that's facts. You but go. Eh, the fact that he was able to continue on for another two years is crazy. Including monsters, judges, and powerful politicians. In the wake of Lucchese's death, confusion surrounded his successor. Tommy had never officially named an heir to the family throne. In his absence, bosses of the other mafia families met and chose the next boss, Tommy's former protege, Tony Dux Corallo. One problem. Corallo was serving the last few years of an extortion charge. In the interim, the families asked Carmine Tremonti to step in and maintain Tommy's rackets. Following in the footsteps of Tommy Lucchese, 
Corallo's men set up rackets at John F. Kennedy Airport. In 1978, Lucchese Crime Family Associates staged an incredible robbery at the Lufthansa Airlines cargo terminal. They made off with $6 million in cash. At the time, the Lufthansa heist was considered the biggest robbery in American history. It wasn't until the 1980s that the feds were finally able to get And this guy, as you can see here, uh, like I told y'all before, they didn't implement RICO laws until the 70s, and they actually didn't put it into effect and go after these guys until the 80s. And then, bam, see the uh, the commission of the Costa Nostra, and then they got each of the families organized. They got the bosses identified, acting boss, underboss, right, consigliaries, all these guys identified, and that's how they're able to go ahead and go after them with such hard charges because of RICO laws being able to charge people through an organization versus charging people individually. To the top leadership of the Lucchese crime family through electronic surveillance, a bug wiretaps. planted in Corallo's car recorded more than 70 hours of incriminating conversations. Federal prosecutor Rudy Giuliani, the future mayor of New York, used the tapes to go after the city's five families. He indicted all of the administrations of the five families, as well as the underbosses and conciliaries and captains or whoever he could sweep into this uh, indictment. In all, six high-ranking mobsters received convictions of extortion, labor racketeering, and murder for hire. They were all convicted, and they all were sentenced to uh, basically 100 years in prison. The verdict removed the top leadership of the Lucchese family from the streets and marked the end of an era. This new generation of bosses was a bit more aggressive. They had really street thugs. Today, it's an organization that garners headlines and stiff convictions. Hardly worthy of the low-profile mobster who revolutionized racketeering. If Tommy Lucchese could arise from the grave, and come back today, I think he would be absolutely stunned at what happened. And here's the Luft, uh, Lufthansa heist right here, guys. Um, right here, you guys can see here. Um, it was uh, December 11th, 1978. Uh, Lufthansa heist was a robbery at New York City's John F. Kennedy International Airport on December 11, 1978. Estimated $5.875 million, equivalent to $24.4 million in 2021. Was stolen with five million in cash and eight hundred seventy-five thousand in jewelry, making it the largest cash robbery committed in American soil at the time. And this was later beat, but guys, by um, the uh, armored car robbery, which I actually covered on this channel. Uh, if we go back here, actually, let me pull it up for y'all. You guys, and you know, real quick, I'll show you guys the, the playlist that we got here. We got all kinds of content for y'all over here. Fed it, man. Yeah. Right, like the video. If you like the video, guys. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. So, here I got all these different playlists, right? So obviously you got all your all, most recent to oldest. Then you got your Sunday vids, which is the live streams. Then you got the Thursday vids, which all the mafia videos are going to begin here. But this was the episode one that kind of gives you guys the background. I'm going to go ahead and create a mafia playlist for y'all. And then obviously we got the famous serial killers. And then we got um. And then if you look at Thursday videos, because it's the Thursday pre-recorded videos, the video. That covers the biggest bank heist in U.S. history is this one right here, the Dunbar 
uh, robbery of $18.9 million in Los Angeles in 1997, man. So, uh, and I reacted to a documentary, FBI Files, which I really like this, this show. Um, but yeah, yeah, go ahead and, uh, you know, check it out, man. I got all kinds of videos for y'all, man. Uh, but this actually ended up being the biggest heist in history. And this actually ended up beating, uh, beating the Lufthansa heist uh, done by the mafia. But uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that little trip down memory lane here. Uh, Angie, what's your final thoughts? Well, I just find it... Good documentary, by the way, for picking this one. Shout out to you. I'll give you a Donna Marcus challenge for picking this one. Yeah, I really liked it. I was watching it the other day while doing my nails. And I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I find it crazy how they managed to have that amount of power that even they... they, Yeah, they managed to monopolize the the politicians in in New York and everything. I mean... Yeah. They took over every industry. I think if that guy hadn't died of cancer he will have you know like made it to president to be honest with you <laughs> like with his ambition yeah, it's just crazy he was clever i mean he was so smart he could play his like monopolio it's just crazy it's and and he never really he didn't die in prison or die through violence yeah. he's one of the few carlo gambino also was one of the few most other mob bosses ended up dying or going to prison so yeah, which is like make yeah exactly that makes him different from all the bosses that we've seen yeah, already we haven't absolutely. seen that many but it's just crazy yeah I mean, when we did the Gambino one, Gam- uh, Gotti got like life in prison pretty much. Yeah. Right? He he beat a bunch of cases, but when the feds but got him, it was he wasn't, over. He wasn't as smart. Yes, he was reckless. Yeah. And he loved the clout, man. FBI, and the next thing you know, FBI came up and got him. You know, went yeah. from the Teflon Don to the <laughs> incarcerated Don. So, uh, yeah, cool. Guys, check us out. Fed it out 1811 yes. on Instagram. Please do. Uh, and guys, hope you guys enjoyed this one. Shout out to Angie for finding this, this documentary. Actually, that was the first time I watched it alongside you guys, so it was great uh, commentary. Don't forget to like nope. the video. Oh, whoop, wrong sound effect. <laughs> Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling, 